Good morning everyone and thank you for the invitation to speak to Hamilton Baptist Church this morning. It's been a few years since I last spoke in the church at a time when I was then the General Director of the Baptist Union of Scotland. Uh, I'm now living uh, with my wife on a boat, which is where this is being filmed, uh, in South Bank Marina in Kirkintilloch and worshipping with the Kirkintilloch Baptist Church as we have done for the last 10 years. Let us hear the word of God together. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Psalm 99. From Psalm 99 and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The Lord is King. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above all the nations. Let them praise at your great and awesome name. Your name is holy. Mighty King, lover of justice, you have established fairness. You have acted with justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also called on his name. They cried to the Lord for help, and he answered them. He spoke to Israel from the pillar of cloud, and they followed the laws and decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them.
You were a forgiving God to them, but you punished them when they went wrong. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Almost 30 years ago, my wife and I worked in the Soviet Union, in the city of Moscow for the Billy Graham Evangelical Association. As part of that ministry, we trained 200 brand new Sunday school teachers for 40 new churches that were being planted following the Billy Graham crusade there. For 70 years, they had had no Sunday school no legal means of passing on their faith to a new generation. Although many of them registered their churches and were able to meet and worship, the teaching of a new generation was completely and utterly banned. One of the big questions we needed to ask at that point of time is, what will we teach this new generation? And the second question was, how will we teach them? What will we teach and how will we teach them? As we approach Psalm 99, we have to have those same questions in mind. Israel has been in exile for 70 years in Babylon, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. During that time, prophets like Jeremiah have told them it would be a long time before they got back and to seek the prosperity of the nation that they found themselves in. So many of the new generation were marrying, marrying Israelite people, yes, but also marrying within the culture. A new generation was growing up without hearing anything really of the temple and of the past. That most famous psalm in all of the psalms globally, Psalm 137, I bet you weren't expecting that. Psalm 137, the most famous psalm in the world. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, there we wept when we remembered Zion, made famous of course by Boney M. That psalm had impregnated the children growing up. They hadn't heard their parents singing the songs of Zion. They couldn't sing them. Such was their grief and sadness. And so when we reach Psalm 99, which is part of book four of the Psalms, we're reaching a point in history where Israel has been exiled for 70 years, is now returning to Jerusalem, is now returning to the temple. And they're asking the question, how will we teach how, what will we teach? And of course, the answer is quite obvious for the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah of that time. We need to teach by singing songs because they don't know the songs of Zion. We stopped singing them when we were in Babylon. The fourth book of the Psalms starts at Psalm 90, runs through to Psalm 100. And six. They are characterized by the fact that they are psalms that are longing for the return of God to his temple. 
What we have in this context is the people have returned from exile, but they are recognising that God is not yet present in his temple. They are longing for God's return. They, they want to sing of the reign of God. They want to sing of his majesty, but he is not enthroned in his city or in his temple. So they sing a lot about God dwelling among them. But what they're really expressing is a feeling of emptiness. A generation that longed to get back from Babylon to sing in the temple. They're all now 80 years plus. And when they arrive back, they look at the temple and it's only a shadow of its former self. And then there's the younger generation. That's everybody in their 70s down. They're the young people. When they return to the temple, they're amazed at the temple. But they don't know any of the songs. And so there's disappointment that they can't join into the worship. And so in this, what is known as the second temple period, there is a characterization of disappointment amongst the people of God who have returned to their spiritual home, but yet things are not the way they want them to be. Malachi sums it up in Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 where he pictures for us bored priests, empty temples and the people of God and they ask who can endure the day of his coming? They know he's not yet present and they're going what's going to happen when God does come? Who We, we just don't know what it's going to be like and when it's going to happen. They can reminisce back to 1 Kings 8 and Solomon when God fills that temple and his glory is in that place and they're excited because he's enthroned in that place. They can think of the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah 6 maybe. You are high and lifted up. But he is not. They are longing. They are waiting. So what would you teach them? And how would you teach them? The how is the easy bit. You write them songs. Songs of scripture. Songs of theology. The Wesleys knew it. One could preach, one could write hymns. The combination was perfect. But the truth is most learnt the theology from the hymns, not from the sermons. We all know it's true. We start off with nursery rhymes and we sing them. If I had asked you to sing to me a psalm or recite to me a psalm, many of you would have gone to Psalm 23, not because you sat down with your Bible and you learned it off by heart, but because you sang, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me by quiet water. You know the psalm because you've sung the psalm. You know Psalm 137 because Boney M sang by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, there we wept when we remembered Zion. In Kirk and Tillich Baptist during lockdown, the children have been learning verses of scripture through song in our services. May the God of peace fill you with all joy and hope as you trust in him so that you may overflow. I never learned that verse from Romans before, but it's in there because of songs. We remember scripture because we learn it through music. 
And so the psalmist starts writing songs at this point, this fourth book of Psalms, to teach an untempled generation about their God, about their King. And they begin with the phrase, Our God is King. Our Lord is King. That word Lord that appears in capitals in your Bible, capital L, big, and then little capital O-R-D, is the word Yahweh, the name of God translated, the name that they did not speak. Yahweh is King. Yahweh reigns. Yahweh is majesty. And that is the theme of our passage today. God is majesty. This book of Psalms picks it up in Psalm 93, Psalm 97 and 99. They all begin with the same phrase, Yahweh reigns. Now there are other themes in Psalm 99 and we're going to have to choose to ignore them today. In fact, Psalm 99's real focus is on the holiness of God. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, Yahweh our God is holy. We'll probably touch on that next week when I speak on our God is righteous. But we're going to focus in on that opening stanza. Yahweh reigns from Psalm 93, Psalm 97, Psalm 99. In Psalm 93 it's unpacked in verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. He is a king, he is robed in majesty, he is a strong king, he's making all things secure by his presence. His majesty makes things certain. I think we can relate to that in a small way. Earlier during the COVID pandemic, the Queen came on and spoke to the nation on a couple of occasions. And it was as if she was saying, you've got prime ministers, you've got medical advisors, you've got scientists, you've got experts. But listen to my voice. I've been around for a long time. Let me bring some security and certainty to the nation at this point. And that's what Psalm 93 is describing. We have a king. Yeah, you've not seen him yet. But we have a king who is enthroned in heaven and everything is secure. These changing uncertain times are secure because he reigns in majesty and he's making things secure by his presence. If you've ever seen a young child walk onto a stage and scan the audience looking for a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or uncle who makes them feel secure so that they can go ahead with the performance. They're saying that's what God is doing. The everlasting king is there. His royal laws, Psalm 93, are unchanging. He makes the uncertain times certain. That is what his security, royal security, is all about. Then if we move on to Psalm 97, we discover it's not just over Israel that he is king, because he is king in majesty over all the earth. Let the earth rejoice all of creation. Even the stones will cry out, will pick up in the New Testament. The farthest coastline Psalm 97 talks of can be glad because God is king over all the earth. The picture in Psalm 97 is of dark clouds 
surrounding his majesty. Not of great radiance. Not of light reflecting out, but of dark clouds. And of course, what the psalmist is picking up here is, is images from the Exodus. Images of where Israel meets her God for the first time at the foot of Mount Sinai and the cloud descends and the lightning and the thunder and the storm hits. There is a thought in the majesty of God that things are dangerous. Things are are mysterious. They're, They're unknown. They're not certain. Now this reflection of exodus of the storm clouds say don't come too close to this majesty. There is a gulf between God enthroned and his people on earth. The fire spreads. The earth trembles and shakes at his majesty. Psalm 99 is going to pick up that sense of majesty in holiness. He is the otherness. But Psalm 97 talks about righteousness and justice are foundations of his throne. God is always doing what is right on a personal basis. But more than that, he is showing justice to the rest of the world. He's doing right by other people. It goes on and says he is the God above all other gods. So You need to be godly and you need to love what he loves and you need to hate what he hates if you're going to come into his presence. This is the very nature of this majestic God. And he's majestic above the nations. And as Israel hear that, of course, what they're hearing is he is majestic above Babylon. He is above their captors. Psalm 99 wants to paint that picture for us. Majesty above the nations, above Babylon, above other kings. There is this aspirational hope in verse 2. The Lord sits in Jerusalem. He doesn't. Not yet anyway. That is their longing. That is their faith statement. That is their hope. This mighty king, this lover of justice is seated in heaven and they long for him to sit in their Jerusalem. Verse 5 talks about exalting him while they bow down. And you know what happens if you exalt one thing and the other bows down? The gap grows. And Psalm 99 says that gap is there because he is holy. And while we raise the Holy One up, we recognize our lowliness and we bow down. The psalm then takes us in verse 6 into stories of Exodus, of Moses and Aaron. Remember, they're the ones who get to see God face to face. They're the ones who get to enter into that dark cloud space. There is hope that we can know the presence of of God. We then get the rather unusual mention of Samuel in this book of Psalms. It's a bit out of place, but remember Samuel is the one who anointed the earthly kings. He was the kingmaker. He was the one who heard the voice of God above the voice of reason and and, and he anointed David and he anointed Saul. And we're getting a picture 
of God who is king, who can guide through the cloud, who spoke through the cloud, who guided as the lawgiver and who guided as the judge out of justice. This is who our king is. He is not a distant king enthroned only in heaven, but he is a king who breaks through and longs to guide his people, who longs to give guidance not only through his voice speaking to you, but through his voice given in the words of scripture over those many years. He is the lawgiver. Follow his ways written down and you will discover that you are walking in the way of your majesty, of your king. Walk in the way of justice and mercy and you will walk in the way of your king. Because God is a God who forgives and who punishes equally, appropriately. And he will guide you through forgiveness and he will guide you through punishment. This is the majesty. This is the king we are to exalt above all other kings. We are to worship him. This not quite yet present God. This one who they are awaiting, awaiting the return of the king, just like we are awaiting the return of the king. That's their longing. This is the start of what's going to become the extended intertestamental period. Psalm 89, the last psalm of of book 3, cries out, How long will we have to wait? The truth, the truth is yet to be seen by this generation returning from exile. The glory of his majesty is yet to be experienced. They did not see the tabernacle being filled with the glory of the Lord. They did not see the first temple being filled with the glory of the Lord. And they were waiting to see the truth unfold in their generation. Oh, how we long for that same thing in ours. Oh, how we long that we would say the reign of God in our towns, in our cities, in our nation. That we would see his glory come down and his people fall prostrate before him and bow down in worship and recognize that he is the king of kings. But we also are in that period of waiting. Of course, Israel's period of waiting has been completed. For these psalmists, as they waited, it has been completed in the double enthronement of Christ, firstly on the cross and secondly after ascension. His first enthronement on that cross, hanging with the sign, he is Jesus, King of the Jews. As Isaiah said, we would find him no majesty, that we should look at him. He just looked like a rough, tumbled Jewish man hanging, dying on the cross. No human majesty. No protected skin from the sun of the day. No protected hands from working hard. No, Jesus' majesty was a very human majesty. And then there is the second enthronement after ascension where he is seated by the Father and affirmed by the Father, seated in a heavenly Jerusalem and yet with the scars of this earth. 
Israel has seen the enthronement of their king. He has come to that city. He has filled that temple. And we find ourselves like them in Psalm 99 waiting his return as the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. So how do we respond as we wait? How do we teach a generation who has never seen the glory days of the church, who have never lived through that Lewis revival that we talk of or that Welsh revival, who have have never seen the church full to capacity and overflowing with people sitting in the aisles and on the windowsills. How do we teach and what do we teach a generation who don't know of the three, four, five hundred people who went on Sunday school trips down the water? We need to teach them like the Sam teaches to bow down in humility and servanthood in reverence and worship just using those words bow down brings so many songs to mind so many words of scripture let us bow down and worship let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God we are the people of his pasture We bow down and confess you are Lord in this place. It belongs to this generation to sing these songs, to to remind a generation that don't yet know the King. Remember that song from the 70s, Majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be glory, honour and praise. So exalt, lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus our King. We need to sing out our songs of praise as we worship him, as we teach a new generation the real nature of our God. The real interesting thing of Psalm 99 is it doesn't talk about what God has done to start with. It just talks about who he is and they exalt him for all that he is. And the other thing we can do is show a new generation that there is no other king and that we have no other king. You know, as we, as we look at Jesus in the Gospels, and let's take Luke as an example in his two-volume Gospel, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. We begin that Gospel of Luke with, with Jesus being born at a time of census where Caesar is rising in Palestine, where Caesar is taking control and working out who his people are in that nation and how they might, he might control them as their king. And, and the time of Jesus' life, we go from that census to the point of worship of Caesar, where by the time we get to end of Acts, people in the world are calling Caesar Lord. And running alongside and in parallel to that story, we have the story of Jesus. And when we get to the end of Acts, we have the Apostle Paul refusing to say Caesar is Lord, but to claim in the most political of ways that Jesus is Lord. What about us? Are we showing another generation that Jesus 
is Lord, that we have no other king, that we do not bow to commercialism, that we do not bow to this idea of being better than our neighbours, of having the next exotic holiday and the next wonderful experience, that our experience and hope and life-giving comes from Christ, not from anything else. That we worship not our work, not our family, not anything else in this world, not our hobbies, not the things that we love dearly, but we worship above all else, majesty, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And do we do that with wonder and amazement and surprise? It was my wedding anniversary the other day, 30 years of marriage. I can't say every word that I've spoken to my wife has been kind and beautiful, but on our wedding anniversary, while we were sitting having a meal together, I just was reminding myself how beautiful she looked and how wonderful a character she had. And I was telling her that. I said, you know, you look absolutely gorgeous tonight. And, and you have been so amazing and so faithful to me. You have helped me with so much. I, I love you so, so much. The anniversary was just an opportunity to express my wonder and amazement and surprise and, and love for her. We're called to do that in a magnified way for God the King. Because Jesus is a king who should surprise us. He was a king in a manger, a king on a donkey, a king on a cross, a king as a servant, a king for all creation, not just for some of creation. He was an approachable king because that bow down and exalting, that gap was filled by the span of his hands as he hung on the cross for the sin of the world and gave his life as a sacrifice. that gap of bowing and exalting is dealt with in Jesus and we should be amazed at it and we should pass on to the next generation the amazement of that gap being transcended and finally he's a king to join forces with because in his kingdom there is hope for this world we teach a generation to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. There is a day when Jesus' kingdom will come in all its fullness. When he will reign in all his fullness. We look forward to that day. But now, like the Israelites back then, we live in the now but not yet of that kingdom. There are aspects of that kingdom clear to see. There is hope of that kingdom clear to see. We are to be bearers of that kingdom. To be bearers of that justice and that righteousness and that holiness. We are to be ones who share the hope of that kingdom with this world. World, to share it with a generation that has never known it. Will you be the songwriters of this generation? As people look at empty churches, as people fear the ongoing impact of coronavirus, Will you stand in faith and say, God is majesty. Yahweh is king. Let us bow down and worship him. Let us say there is no other king and let us demonstrate it by the way that we live. 
Let us never lose that wonder or amazement. And let us do all that we can to see his kingdom come. Amen. Let us pray. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be glory, honour and praise. We exalt you, our Lord and King. We recognise that you are the one who rules this world in justice and righteousness. You are the hope of this world. Lord, would you bring your truth to bear in this world at this period in history? Would your church rise up as people of your kingdom who live for your kingdom and not for the kingdoms of this world, who live for your glory and not for the glory of ourselves? Lord, help our worship to be the way we give our lives and surrender them as Christ did. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I look forward to being with you next week as we explore the theme, God is Righteous.